Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. Welcome back to the show. Today we have another amazing scientist with us. And for our listeners, can you please tell us your name and your preferred pronouns? Sure. Uh, my name is Brett Jameson. I'm in the School of Earth and Ocean Sciences at UVic, and I go by he, him pronouns. Wonderful. So, Brett, what are you currently researching? So right now, my work is primarily focused on sort of this intersection between microbial ecology and biogeochemistry. So I'm really interested in sort of the bridging the gap there from sort of the more uh, hardline rate measurement stuff that a lot of our chemical oceanographers do and some of the fundamental questions surrounding the role of the microbes themselves in regulating those processes in the ocean. Whoa, okay. So in biogeochemistry, we're talking about like nutrient cycling, right? Yes, absolutely. And a lot of the times, microbes are the ones that are doing a lot of the cycling of nutrients. So that's kind of the gap that you're going for? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, I mean, certainly when I, you know, first got interested in the, in the ocean as an ecosystem, I think us as people were really drawn towards these, you know, we call them charismatic megafauna, the orcas, the sharks, the stuff that really, you know, grab our, our visual attention. But for me, really, you know, I, I have this, this deep interest in how some of these, you know, behind the curtain processes by organisms that we can't see and we can't really interact with directly like that are driving these, these fundamental processes that facilitate uh, the the ecosystem function in a sense the the existence of you know these these larger organisms and these beautiful ecosystems that we see in the marine realm yeah it's super important i think our attention definitely gets drawn into those really char- charismatic species but what you're doing sounds equally important and so i'm wondering how do you kind of engage with these microbes we can't see them we can't really touch them i guess or manipulate them directly So what exactly do you do in order to, I guess, kind of measure them and see how they're interacting with the nutrient cycles in the ocean? Sure, yeah. It's... um so for, for the longest time, the, the field of microbiology was sort of characterized by this need to um, isolate organisms from their natural environment and, and culture them, obtain them in pure culture so you can study their physiology, uh, their phenotypes, you know, the, the, you know their, their fundamental characteristics. And, and that was sort of the status quo for, for many decades. But recently we've started to see this, this large-scale application of, you know, what we would call modern molecular techniques that allow us to use some fancy you know, tricks of chemistry to look at protein encoding gene sequences. So, you know, biological sequences that, that these organisms possess that, that are fundamental precursors to these processes in question. So we're talking about gene sequences that encode for an enzyme or set of enzymes of interest that are required for 
driving these biological or biogeochemical transformations. So, you know, turning or, you know, mediating the transformation of nitrogen between its various forms in the ocean and, and things like that. Yeah, that is really interesting. So in my limited experience with nutrient cycling and understanding how that works with microbes, it sounds like how they do this is encoded in their DNA. And basically what you're saying is that you can look at their DNA and see, okay, which microbe might help mediate this process within the nutrient cycle? Yeah, yeah, something like that. So um, because we can't observe these organisms directly what we what we have to do especially in the ocean be it in the water column or in sediments is is grab a lot of material we might grab you know a couple liters of seawater or a couple grams of sediment and we can start to pull out the the dna from those organisms so we can break down the cells we can extract that dna we can also extract the rna so the you know the intermediate between the dna sequence and the and the enzyme and we can start to we can start to look a little bit deeper into what these genes are and what they're doing in the environment and under what environmental conditions. So this is like really, really behind the scenes stuff. I mean, you know, we get distracted, I think, by seeing exactly like the direct relationships in the environment, but you're looking at the steps behind what's happening with these relationships. Mm-hmm. Super cool. How exactly do you measure all of these. So you mentioned maybe grabbing some seawater, maybe grabbing a lot of material. Is there any way, obviously you're looking at them in the ocean, but are you collecting them from a ship, I'm assuming, in the middle of the ocean or a little bit closer to our shorelines? Yeah, I've, I've actually worked in a, in a pretty broad range of ecosystems trying to refine some of these techniques and apply them to uh, systems that can be a little bit tricky to study. And there's a couple different lenses we can look at this through. I, so I've done, I've done work in the Northeast Pacific there in the, on the continental slope, so in the sediments there where uh, we, we have a bunch of unanswered questions. I've also worked very close to home at UVic here. I've done you know a large portion of my graduate research has been focused in Saanich Inlet, and I could talk all day about Saanich Inlet. You can. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, um, yeah I, I love that system. Um, and I've also, I've also taken some of these techniques down to a place like Bermuda and worked in some of the mangrove systems there. And so really trying to cover a broad range of marine ecosystems to, like I said previously, address some, some fundamental questions that maybe are, are more general in scope and not specific to one particular ecosystem. So I'm going to ask the big question. Mm-hmm. How does your work relate to climate change? <laughs> That's actually a really good question. I'm, I'm glad you asked it. So there, when, you're, when you're looking at a community of microbes, like if you think of, you know, you take a drop of ocean water, right? Um, you know, an eyedropper's worth. And you, and you look under a microscope, there can, you know, depending on the, on the package of water you're looking at, you can have up to a million individual cells that are participating in this really complex and cryptic network of interactions. They are, you know, feeding off of each other. They're repelling and attracting. They're producing public goods. They're, um, they're producing antibiotic compounds. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And so what you really have to do is when you're, when you're, you have to narrow in on a specific question and then you have to try and find, you know, a tractable process to try and address it with. And so for me, my, my, my graduate focus is actually on nitrous oxide gas. For our listeners, 
Can you explain a little bit about the importance of nitrous oxide gas and maybe the implications it has for climate change in the global nitrogen cycle? Yeah, so nitrous oxide is a really potent greenhouse gas. It's actually our, our third most relevant, if you will, greenhouse gas between carbon dioxide and methane. But what people might not know is that you know, on a per molecule basis, nitrous oxide or N2O, so if I, you know, I might switch between the two terms, but, but nitrous oxide is actually roughly 300 times more powerful than CO2 on a per molecule basis. Now, it, it exists in the atmosphere in lower concentrations, so we measure CO2 on, you know, scales of parts per million, where, whereas we measure N2O on, on scales of parts per billion. Uh, but it is more potent as a greenhouse gas in the, in the atmosphere. The other big thing with nitrous oxide is that it's a stratospheric ozone de- depleting agent. So it has that extra dimension to it where when it, when it escapes the troposphere and into the stratosphere, it, it actually depletes ozone. Yeah. So in other words, this is not something that we want to be producing and we really need to understand processes that produce nitrous oxide so that we can A, protect our ozone and B, hopefully mitigate some of the effects of climate change. Yeah, exactly. And so similar to our trends with with carbon dioxide, we can see, you know, a a pretty steady increase in atmospheric N2O concentrations over time, you know, since the pre-industrial era. I think it's important to to clarify here to the listeners that that nitrous oxide is a natural byproduct of microbial metabolism, specifically microbes that are that are involved in the nitrogen cycle. And so there is a baseline level of production and consumption and cycling similar to, to CO2, right? But what we're really concerned is is how human activities are are driving the increase in atmospheric nitrous oxide. And, and here we're talking about a wide range of, of human-induced impacts here. We can talk about fertilizer application to agricultural soils, which is you know, where resulting in the, the largest increase in, in atmospheric CO2. But we're also concerned about things like upper ocean stratification, so warming of the surface ocean um, and reducing that m- vertical mixing because you, you tend to get nitrous oxide produced in the subsurface ocean in areas that are that are well stratified, where where there's not a lot of mixing between the surface and and the deep layers, we can say a lot about what the impact of nitrogen fertilizer addition is doing to our our global nitrous oxide budgets, if you will. We really don't know what to expect in the coming um, decades or, or centuries with respect to the larger impacts to the global ocean. Yeah, and it sounds like that's where a lot of your work comes in, and it's extremely important for us to understand some of these drivers of this nitrous oxide. Honestly, I think a lot of us out there, we really only hear about CO2 or methane a little bit more frequently. But as you said, in the future, this is going to become more and more of an issue with people increasingly changing our environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so the important thing to reiterate here is that with respect to the, the larger climate change trends, there's, there's currently, it's a pretty controversial topic in the literature right now, but what is, what is going to happen with marine N2O? There are modeling studies that show, you know, over the next sort of hundred years that we can expect a decrease in ocean emissions to the atmosphere. But then there's also reason to believe that, you know, with increased stratification and global ocean deoxygenation, that will get an uptick in N2O emissions from the surface ocean. Nitrous oxide, as I as I mentioned, maybe I'll just go a little bit into the the pathways here. The the reason why this these these processes are of interest to me is because they're really tractable from a microbial ecology perspective. 
Nitrous oxide is produced biologically by two primary metabolic pathways. The, the first one happens in the, in the presence of oxygen, and that's nitrification, right? So the, the conversion of ammonium to nitrate, the two-step process there. It's also produced as an intermediate of the denitrification pathway. So these are organisms that, in the absence of oxygen, can use nitrate and substitute it in place for oxygen, and they reduce it or they tr you know, uh, transform it all the way to N2 gas. But it has to go through N2O first before it gets to N2O gas. Now, the weird thing that happens when we're talking about a, you know, an ocean water column as you go down from the surface, because organic matter in the ocean sinks out from where you know, sunlight can reach, when it gets below the mixed layer, it depletes oxygen. And what we see is at the boundaries of what we call these oxygen minimum zones, where, where oxygen in the water is, is reaching its lowest levels, we see an uptick in production rates from both of those pathways. So at really low oxygen levels, nitrification is kicking up a lot more N2O. We call that N2O yield. So the, the amount of N2O that is produced by our nitrifiers is increasing. But also, small amounts of oxygen actually poison the enzyme that's responsible for converting N2O to N2 gas. So we get these kind of bands of water where oxygen is kind of in this sweet spot zone where we get elevated production rates from both of these pathways. That kind of blew my mind a little bit. So, I mean, all of these different pathways, all of these different processes going on, you mentioned that you're able to kind of measure the DNA and the RNA of these microbes, but are you able to measure directly what's happening, how much uh, nit nitrous oxide is being produced or uh, the different types of nitrogen being produced by these microbes as they go through the process? Yes, absolutely. And so that's kind of where, where my research is attempting to sort of bridge this gap because we can we can say a lot about what pathways are contributing under a given set of environmental conditions if we let's we'll talk about seawater for for a second if we take a you know a, a package of seawater we put it in a bottle we can we can add uh, substrates to it so you know the the metabolic precursors the things that these these microbes are feeding on for lack of a better term and we can we can put a label on them and how we label that is so if you take ammonium, if you're interested in nitrification, the conversion of ammonium and, you know, to nitrite, and, and you're interested in how much N2O is coming from ammonium, well, we can label that ammonium with a, uh, like a 15N label. So we, it's, it's called 15N tracers. But what that is, is just taking, taking your ammonium substrate and making it a little bit heavier. Right? One extra neutron in there makes it a little bit heavier. And then we can detect that label when we measure the N2O at the end of our incubations. And we can do the same thing for denitrification. We can start to parse, you know, under this set of environmental conditions, okay, nitrification is the predominant process here. The gap to bridge there is, you know, we can, we can say a lot about the pathways there, but what we can't say is who's there in terms of the microbial community and who's doing it. I don't think a lot of us think that you can change how heavy an element is, but the fact that we can do that and then use that to see how much of each kind of nitrogen is being produced and the processes along the way. And not only that, relate it back to the species of microbe that's, that's doing that. Incredible. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's super interesting and it's kind of, it's been even just throughout grad school because I when I started my journey in science, like I think like many people just just didn't care that much about microbes. You know, I, I didn't really like the microbiology courses that I took as prerequisites. 
And I think it just because I, I wasn't really connecting with just how cool these interactions are and these systems are. What actually got you interested in microbes? Because, you know, as you said at the beginning, they're not very charismatic. So how did you get started with your interest in the ocean, in science, and then eventually microbes? My my interest in the ocean started at a at a relatively young age, and I think like like a lot of people, I'm not sure if you, you've had this experience as well. But when you tell people what you do, I, I frequently get like, oh, you know, I, I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was, you know, when I was younger, and and I actually think that that you know, marine marine biologist is a bit of a misnomer almost in that the ocean is the system. You know, there's almost unlimited avenues that you can take in terms of your your topic of study. So you can be a marine ecologist, you can be, you know, a molecular biologist. You can there's a bunch of different things within this biological context, a bunch of different, you know, research fields that that can take you into the marine realm. I first started at at, at a young age. I think, you know, there's a bunch of pop culture references, things like Jaws. I, I really loved sharks when I was younger. Like most, you know, yeah, lots of lots of young people really like sharks. Free Willy, I loved whales. And, and I grew up in the prairies of Saskatchewan. And so for me, you know, surrounded by thousands of kilometers of continental landmass in each direction, like the ocean's just a rumor from where I live, right? It's just this, it's this mysterious thing and, and we don't really understand it or, or interact with it at all. When I graduated high school, I was kind of, you know, lacking direction in terms of where I wanted to go in my educational journey, but I, I knew that I loved the ocean. And so I... My first year out of high school, I saved up a bunch of money I, and I flew to Australia with some buddies and, and my big thing on that trip was I want to go to the barrier reef and I want to learn how to scuba dive. And that was sort of my first like immersive experience in it where I was like, whoa, like, this is it. Like I have to be here. And from there, it was kind of uh, a meandering path. I, I moved to Dalhousie where I did my undergrad in marine biology and, and was really fortunate to have the opportunity to go to the Bermuda Institute of Ocean Sciences as an undergraduate research intern. And I, I worked first on the impacts of ocean acidification on coral reef biology. So I was like really interested in corals. And that's kind of where I started. I returned to Bermuda to teach a fall course after I graduated my my undergrad and because I was teaching only four days a week I was finding myself with like a little bit too much free time for my own good and so I, I just I, w I attended a seminar that was talking about coral microbiomes so in the mucus layer of, of coral colonies they have this really interesting microbiome and I, I attended a seminar there and it blew my brain apart and from that moment on, I started volunteering two days a week in the microbial ecology lab there and was put in contact through a colleague with my, with my current supervisor and jumped at the opportunity to come to UVic and, and sink my teeth into the microbial world. What a journey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I can totally relate to you just like the ocean being this mystical idea growing up because I grew up in Ohio and it's, you know... Yeah, no totally. <laughs> yeah, so you get it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I especially resonate with what you said about being a marine biologist, you know, in quotes, air quotes. It can be almost anything within relation to the ocean. There's so many different avenues, and I think a lot of the time when people who don't, you know, live near the ocean or know a whole lot about the ocean are like, "Oh, I'm going to be a marine biologist." It's like, you know, thinking about working at SeaWorld or something and working with these huge marine megafauna. 
but in reality, there's so many different avenues, like you said, and you're a great example of that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's kind of cool. I just I, I view I view the ocean as the lab, right? You you have a question, you develop this question, this sort of knowledge gap, and and in many cases, the ocean is the place to answer it, at least a very good place to answer it. And so that's kind of how I how I view marine ecosystems in general. It's like that's that's my lab, you know. Yeah, which is. Honestly, I think a great way to view the ocean, especially as a place that we can interact with and also protect for the future. Yeah, absolutely. So we've kind of touched on it a little bit, but what's one of your main motivators to do science or do marine research? I'm just an innately curious person. I I spend a lot of time daydreaming, asking questions, like wondering to myself, how does this thing how does this thing work? And that, and that was certainly my experience. My, my first time being able to immerse myself fully in the ocean is just, it wasn't really enough for me to, to sort of passively observe. And, and, and that's great. And I still love doing it, but I just, I needed to know how it worked. And the more you start studying, the more you realize how many unknowns there are. And I think that's just the most captivating part about studying the ocean is just how, how much unknown there is, how much left there is to discover. And so my, my primary motivation is just I, I love having the opportunity to identify a knowledge gap, find out something we don't know, you know, or at least don't know much about, or our understanding is incomplete. And then science gives you this, the, the toolkit that you need to address that knowledge gap. You can start to think of, you know, okay, how am I gonna plan out this experiment? You know, what what sort of confounding variables do I have to account for? What's the you know most elegant way to sort of drill down into this? What's gonna be the most convincing to my peers? And and that's what I really love about it. This this idea of just con- contributing something to our knowledge of our shared reality, this weird place we all find ourselves in. And yeah, that that for me, that's it. Definitely. And I love how you put it. If it wasn't something we were curious about, if it was something we already knew everything about, it wouldn't be exciting. It wouldn't be challenging or I don't think it would be worth it to study something that we just already know about and are too familiar with. Yeah, exactly. I'm also kind of wondering what kind of research obstacles you faced. So we've talked about your love of science and the ocean but a lot of the times there are obstacles throughout research. So if you don't mind sharing a couple of those, that would be great. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could fill a <laughs> podcast with with obstacles. I often tell people I, you know, grad school has been, it has given me a lot. I, I often tell people that almost above all, it has been an exercise in how to fail repeatedly. You You just, you learn how to take those losses and pick yourself back up and then get back into it. And so there, I mean, as I'm sure you're aware, there's everything from, you know, logistical issues to personal issues that you have to navigate while trying to be a scientist. And, you know, so my, my first two years of study here, I was like, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed coming from, from Bermuda and, you know, all of these grand ideas. And my first summer, I think it was the summer of, it would have been the summer of 2017. So my very first semester, I was amped up to go on this big, eight-week-long open ocean voyage, leaving from Astoria in Oregon up to the, you know, the upper coast of Alaska. I'm sorry, did you say eight weeks? 
Yes. Yeah. I believe it was six to eight weeks planned in the Northeast Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and and I was just over the moon about it because most of the, you know, most of my interaction with the ocean had been coastal, near shore diving, which is great. But this idea of like going out on a on a big fancy research vessel and sending robots down to the ocean surface where there's no light, like that just was so captivating to me. And so, you know, there was months of prep that went into it and we landed on the docks in Astoria for our pre-departure briefing and and we get called in with all of the scientists and crew and they let us know before we even push off from the dock that during their diagnostics the day before they had discovered an engine failure, an engine malfunction and so they just axed the crews all together. <laughs> and so, you know, that's wow. <laughs> yeah. That must have been devastating. Like I can't imagine doing all that preparation then just saying no, it's not happening. Yeah, absolutely. And it and you know that was the you know the first of a couple uh, experiences that early on in grad school gave me this reputation in the department of like bad cruise luck. <laughs> yes, like nobody wants to sail with Brett because something's going to happen out there. So, I'm assuming you did have a successful cruise at some point. Yeah, so it, it actually took uh, two full years. Um, so I had, uh, you know, another, there was another instance in 2018 where we actually made it out to sea as part of the Pacific Seamounts expedition. And I know you've had, um, Megan on, on the show who talks a little bit about, about the seamount biology. And so that was our first DFO affiliated cruise to the seamounts. I was just kind of tagging along, but we had a day or two of sampling where I was supposed to be getting push cores from, from the seamount, so mud, so that I could probe into those muds and see what's going on in terms of the microbes there. About halfway through our, our cruise, there was an explosion in one of the engine cylinders that like immobilized us out at sea for, I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it, it was like a full day. And of course, you know, the, the dive that was supposed to be geared towards, you know, full core sampling had to be scrapped and, and rightfully so. It just, you know, it was, you know, I was lucky to be there in the, in the first place. But, you know, prior to that, I had had issues with just simply obtaining the push course. Like we, you know, we're down there with the ROV, the robot, and we're, we're trying to get mud in these sediment cores and every time we pull it out of the sediment it's falling out and nothing's staying in there and so so I left that cruise also with with no data and it took me until so the fall of 20, 2019 so over two years into into my PhD research before I actually had anything to work with. <laughs> yeah. Wow it sounds like it's been a wild ride for you and I mean getting push cores from the bottom of the ocean is no joke like you honestly have so many opportunities for things to go wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's infinite things that can go wrong. There's there's so many things that can go wrong in a lab on dry land. And you're talking about exporting all of this stuff like hundreds of kilometers off the coastline. It's not like you can go into uh, you know go into your local home depot and you know find a fix or something. If it, you know you're you you really are out of luck. Yeah, because I mean, like you said, you have limited supplies limited time you have basically one shot for this so i guess what i'm wondering now is you've encountered all these failures how did you kind of move past them as you said pick yourself back up keep moving with your research in a way that i guess you didn't burn out because you're here <laughs> Completely, <laughs> yeah. I mean. I've, I've been close many times yeah. Yeah. we've all been close many times yeah. but you've still pushed forward and come through so i'm wondering if you have advice for people who seem to uh, repeatedly encounter these failures and what you would say to them 
in order to encourage them to keep going. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I think I think first and foremost to me and the the biggest piece of advice I can give to any graduate student is just be kind to yourself. Just be kind to yourself. We we place such high expectations on ourselves and sometimes it doesn't work out and sometimes it's not your fault and sometimes it is your fault and that's okay too because we're human. We make mistakes. We there, there's blunders, there's, you know, there's oversights, there's stuff that you just miss and and if you can if you can extract the lesson from that and then leave it behind as quickly as possible, forgive yourself, start again tomorrow. Remember why you're here, remember why you're doing this, and try again tomorrow. That is great advice. I really love that, especially because a lot of the times people, myself included, can get stuck in that cycle of just beating yourself over and over. Oh, if I had done this differently or you know, facing feelings of regret. But I think it's really important that of course you learn from your mistakes, but then you are able to pick yourself up, move forward, and just, as you said, be kind to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the other side of that coin is to just be intentional about surrounding yourself with people that care about you. Just surround yourself with good people, people to lift you back up when you're feeling low. For me, it was really important to cultivate a, a community of friends within science. And I think I... I had in the first couple years maybe maybe pushed that away a little bit, maybe felt like a bit of a square peg in a round hole in, in the science community. And it took me a couple years to realize that, that I actually needed people in front of me that get it, that, that understand what it's like to go through this. And I think that's, that's a huge part of it because on those days when you're feeling down about yourself or your confidence is shot or you've just had a massive failure, you can talk to someone who's going to sit across from you and go, oh, you think that's bad? Like, wait till I tell you how bad I messed up. You know? <laughs> Definitely, for sure. And I think there is a little bit something special about people in the same field as you who know, yes, these things happen all the time and this is just part of the job. Yeah, absolutely. It's super, super important. And then, you know, equally important is have some friends that are far away from it, you know, because you, you, you need to take those days where you just, you don't think about your work and you goof off with some people and you chat about something else and you, and you get fresh perspectives of people that aren't, you know, immersed in this, this, you know, community and culture. And, and that's super beneficial too. Just, just, um, yeah, just have good people around folks. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I totally agree with you. And again, being in academia can sometimes feel a little bit isolating. And having that support network, having that community of friends is extremely important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I do I do want to just take a, a second to to shout out my, you know, my, my academic team on campus here because they have been just instrumental in in my successes here to whatever degree I've had them. My my supervisors, Kim and Kat, my lab mates Cheryl and Mo who's also been on the show she's fantastic my academic sister I always refer to her as um yeah th those types of people who who want to see you succeed who who are going through it as well and who have the knowledge to sort of point you in the right direction help you correct you know work on you know the people that can softly point out your weaknesses and get you to, to tend to those but who are also encouraging and and supportive that's also just vitally important yeah, I'm glad you've been able to experience that. And honestly, we wish the same for everybody in science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've given some great advice about, you know, having a good community of people surrounding you, being kind to yourself. 
What's something that you wish somebody, maybe your older future self, had told you before going into graduate school, aside from you're going to encounter some failures? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think if, if I could go back and talk to my past self, I would I would tell that young lad that he was not as good as he thought he was. <laughs> you know, I, I felt like I was I was humbled pretty quickly coming into graduate school because I tested well in undergraduate. And I think that that gave me sort of a false sense of confidence. Um, and, you know, sort of sitting at the peak of the Dunning-Kruger curve where I had a little bit of information. And once I was, was forced to interact with the breadth of literature on this topic, you know, this, that, that in the grand scheme of things is really narrow. Like you're, you're zeroing in on like a really specific question and it goes deep, like it goes really deep and, and there's so much complexity there. And I think I was, I was a little bit blindsided by that. And so that would be the first bit of advice. Maybe, you know, enter with like a little bit of humility for myself anyway. And then, and I think this, this goes back to, to the be kind to yourself bit that, you know, this, this journey is so taxing. It's taxing emotionally. It's taxing cognitively. And then life happens in the background. Real life happens in the background. And there is loss and there is grief and there is, you know, moments of profound joy and elation. And you get the full spectrum of it. All the while, there's this common thread of this project, your baby that you're, you're kind of nurturing. And that would be another bit of advice is that like in those moments when, when life gets like really hard, because it does for everybody, everybody has those moments where it just, it just is hard to do the thing. It's hard to find the motivation. Take the time. Like if you need a week, take the week, you know, it's not worth drilling yourself into the ground over. Take the week to process whatever you're going through. Take two weeks, take whatever you need and have faith that you have the ability to make up the ground and that you can bring yourself back and that you'll be stronger for it. And I think that would, you know, if I had that advice going in, I think at least the first couple of years maybe would have gone a little bit easier for me. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. yeah. And I agree it is extremely important to take care of yourself because while grad school is a whole beast in and of itself, life is always happening. It's not going to stop regardless of whether things go right or wrong with your project. So I agree. Mental health, taking time for yourself in order to process things and make sure that you're okay yeah. is extremely important. Absolutely. Yeah. So as we wrap up, I'm just wondering what's something that you might be looking forward to in the future? I know you have a couple things on the horizon for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the first thing, I've, so I've, uh, my defense is coming up on April 26th, so I'm in uh, prep mode for that right now. And then, um, so after that, the, the day after, I'm flying to Toronto. I'm a huge Blue Jays fan. I love watching baseball, and I'm, I've got tickets to three straight games in a row. <laughs> and so, um, so I'm really excited to go sit in the sunshine, watch a little baseball, not think about nitrous oxide at all. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I've, I've been super fortunate to, to be able to join the Bermuda Institute of Ocean Sciences again as a, as a postdoc. I'm going back to my coral roots, but kind of taking the toolkit that I've developed over the last couple years and trying to you know, bring a fresh perspective and, and set of skills there. So really excited to get back down there again. That place keeps, uh, keeps bringing me back. So <laughs> very excited for that. That does sound super exciting. And I'm not going to lie, I am a little bit jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost summer and it's honestly, this is the time that I want to be on the beach, white sand beaches, you know? Yeah. Well, the time is coming <laughs> in Victoria as well. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be here soon for yeah. sure. But thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed talking with you and wishing you the best for the future. 
Thank you so much, Ashley. This has been an absolute pleasure, and we'll see you around campus soon. Sounds good. Okay, bye. Ocean Bites Out Loud is supported by CFUV 101.9 FM at the University of Victoria and the Graduate School of Oceanography at the University of Rhode Island.